0: Avi's Conversational Corner, a podcast on history, culture, and politics in a broad perspective. I am your host, Avi Wolf. It was a time of rapid, terrifying, and exhilarating change. A time of scientific breakthroughs, mass politics, endless scandals, and efforts at reform. A time when new groups of Americans fought for and sometimes won their right to participate fully in American life, while others did their best to try and keep America as it was or as they imagined it to be. With few heroes, many villains, great geniuses, and piercing questions, many of which still trouble us today. Welcome to Stumbling Colossus, a regular part of Avi's Conversational Corner covering the gilded and progressive ages of the United States, from the end of the Civil War to the end of the First World War. You can find this and other episodes of Avi's Conversational Corner at Google Podcasts and on Amazon Music. This episode's topic, Rome and America. The struggle for Catholic acceptance in a predominantly Protestant country did not begin in this time, but it seemed to pick up steam and urgency. With millions of Catholic immigrants pouring in from Ireland, Italy, Eastern Europe, and elsewhere, Catholic Americans were becoming a true political and social force to be reckoned with. How did Catholic Americans see their place in the emerging American nation and towards other Americans? How did the Pope and religious and intellectual leaders see it? And how did they deal with the fear of divided loyalties among natives and nativists? With me today to discuss at least some of these issues is Professor James Patterson of Ave Maria University. James, welcome back on the show thank you uh
1: so it's great to be back avi I am uh very happy to uh to talk about this subject this is actually one of my favorite periods in um uh, in Catholic history in America even though it's act- it's also quite a quite a, a rough one uh, but that's what makes it so interesting all the conflicts and personalities involved
0: indeed uh, that's part of what it to, uh, attracted it to me is that it's a it's a very messy story uh but a very interesting one so let us imagine that a would-be traveler uh, from Europe comes, is interested in learning about um, how Catholics are thriving, or perhaps not, in the United States at the, at the end of the Civil War, uh, around, the, around the middle of the Gilded Age, and by the end of the First World War. Uh, what might they see? Uh, what, what, what might have changed and what might have stayed the same?
1: Okay, so the uh, probably the best thing to consult for this is uh, a, a an incredibly significant uh, uh, a plenary council, uh, which is where uh, leading figures in the American Catholic Church would convene. This is the third plenary council of 1884. It meets in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, a lot of people don't know this, but Baltimore... For the longest time, was really the the chief diocese uh, for the American Catholic Church. It was the uh, it was the first one ever created, and the fir- therefore the first American Catholic. Uh, uh, Bishop was its first holder, uh, John Carroll, and so there's a real significance to John Carroll being sort of related to the only Catholic founder to sign the Declaration of Independence. So the 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 um, the starting point for uh, for the Catholic Church was always to uh, to meet in Maryland, and the Plenary Council is something that's written with uh, a direct report to uh, to the then Pope Leo the Thirteenth, and so this is a very significant. A council that will produce a lot of uh, important documents, and it's headed up by a cardinal who will probably talk a fair bit about a man named uh, Cardinal uh, James Gibbons, uh, who had become uh, uh, the bishop, uh, the Archbishop of the diocese in 1877. But uh, at the Third Plenary Council, uh, one of the one of the bishops provides an account of uh, what the church looked like. I won't read this very long paragraph from the memorial volume of the Third Plenary Council, but I'll I'll, I'll provide some of the statistics that are listed in it. Uh, So in 1884, uh, uh, a person walking around the United States would have noticed um, uh, that there were 6,623,000 Catholics. Uh, and there, that the church ha- uh, had almost 7,000 priests, 61 bishops, um, 7,700 churches and chapels, 708 seminaries, colleges, and academies, 294 asylums, 139 hospitals, uh, and they had uh, 2,500 parochial schools um, and, with, with uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of students. Um, and so the number of Catholics in the United States, sort of in that sweet spot of the Gilded Age, uh, was huge and had an incredibly loud, uh, I'm sorry, incredibly large, um, uh, presence, especially in American cities, uh, where Catholics, um, often stayed after arriving as immigrants to the United States, uh, and... Uh, This growth in institutions, um, this sounds like, uh, you know, like you would expect the numbers to be, but what's important to understand is that this all happened in a generation, maybe like a generation and a half. And and, and in the midst of there, there was, of course, the Civil War. So from the famine Irish arriving in the 1830s to 1884, suddenly the uh, American cities are completely full of Catholics uh, and it uh, produced all kinds of concerns uh, that uh a lot of um uh protestants and otherwise uh anti-catholic politicians were were prone to responding to
0: uh, interesting introduction so before we get into james gibbon uh and uh and and the plenary council which sounds uh, quite fascinating setting protestant uh concerns, and I guess paranoia aside, what was the attitude of your average Catholic or your average priest uh, towards Rome, uh, considering the general attitude of the American government, which even when it wasn't explicitly Protestant, was certainly not a fan of the idea that any American citizen obeys to authorities?
1: Right. Um, So the predominant view uh, in uh, the uh, the bishops of the period was called the Americanist view. Uh, the Americanist view was one of integrating American uh, Catholic life into the church. Uh, most of the people who ad uh, who advocated for this position were Irish. Uh, the um, the bishops in the United States were predominantly Irish. Now, not all of them did. Well, you know, we may be able to talk about. Some people who didn't like um, uh, Archbishop Michael Corrigan in New York was not a fan of this. But your average Catholic, the people who maybe they didn't even get to meet their bishop and the average priest were typically uh, very uh, eager to prove their patriotism. And in fact, many had during the Civil War, uh, despite um, a rather complicated relationship to slavery, especially with some uh, people like... uh, Bishop John Hughes uh, in New York, uh, during the Civil War, uh, most of the, uh, the Catholics who fought were in the Union, and so there, there was this sense in which the Catholics had spilt their blood for the, uh, the preservation of the Union, uh, and so they were, t- they, were, they were normally very enthusiastically patriotic uh, and uh, were very concerned that no one took them seriously on this. Um, this is why at the plenary council, uh, Gibbon uh, has in his his letter uh, that uh, he wanted to educate American Catholics that the founders founded wiser than they knew. Often repeated is the line "founded better than they knew," but that's actually uh, a misremembering of the line that started with Father John Courtney Murray and was repeated by a bunch of other people. But um, there was this this earnest attempt to prove that American the American Catholics were patriotic. Uh, loyal citizens, um, and uh, and a big reason for this is because that's what their bishops wanted too, uh, and needless to say, there was some degree of um, of friction between these bishops and the Holy See and uh, European bishops.
0: So, given that friction, what was the uh, the 19th century in general, I think, is a, is a time uh, of quite a bit of uh, tension uh, for Rome and for the Catholic Church, because this is a time of, of revolution, a time where a lot of people rightly or wrongly associate the injustices of the state with the injustices of the church, and a lot of people are in favor of disestablishment, uh, even if they say personally Catholic. Um, there's a rise of a, of a, of a working class, which kind of sort of is uh, kind of secularizing in some ways. And in all that, so what is the, you're, you, so you mentioned the, the attitude of the, the American bishops. How did things look like from Rome? And what were the, what did they, what if anything did they try to fight for? And what did they say? What did they say, you know what, let America be America as long as they still come to church? So
1: the uh there there were some early signs that uh the American church was a, a little different uh from the rest of the church during uh, the first Vatican Council meets in the 1870s uh and is ultimately cut short because of yet another European war I think this was the Franco-Prussian war uh and uh, the Americans uh, were generally reluctant to approve of uh, papal infallibility. Um, and when the First Vatican Council affirms that, uh, the bishops return with a kind of, um, uh, with, a, with, with, with very little interest in promulgating this doctrine and emphasizing it. Whereas in Europe, the significance of papal infallibility was the attempt to, uh, to extricate uh, the papacy from uh, national interests, and instead make it a kind of challenge to uh, to these uh, to the European states. Um, essentially, try to create a kind of uh, 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 an independent uh, voice to challenge uh, uh, leaders of Catholic countries. So. There was already kind of a bad sign uh, with with this approach, and the reason is because the United States uh, and and its Catholic Church had largely developed uh, its own sort of uh, ways of dealing with uh, with the state uh, early in its history. Uh, the Catholic Church was very small; um, it had an it had a, a Catholic number of people running the state of Maryland or the colony of Maryland, who are unceremoniously. Uh, dumped out of their role in leading the state after 1688, the, the state of Maryland is, or the colony of Maryland is uh, rendered Protestant. Um, and uh, that's why during the revolution, uh, these small number of Catholics were very much in favor of, of independence. Uh, and when um, they're, they're sort of educating the next generation, uh, 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 especially the sons and daughters of the famine Irish, they teach them in something called conciliarism which uh, establishes the idea that the papacy uh, only can speak inerrantly when it is speaking with the council so you can see why like you know a hundred years later or uh, 80 years later when they're actually going to the uh, to the first Lateran council where conciliarisms ultimately condemned there's a kind of there's a kind of ambivalence uh, about what happened um, uh, but uh, more than that, um, American uh, bishops were deeply Republican, little r Republican, and were more than happy to operate under a church disestablishment. In fact, they were uh, wishing that they could get more of that church disestablishment, given how Protestantism in the, uh, in the state and federal government was sort of uh, an unofficial established church Um so you, as long as you are Protestant, you generally were satisfied with things like state-sponsored common schools because uh, you would get a, a sort of culturally Protestant education there, whereas Catholics had to uh, sort out their own schooling because that's not what they wanted their, 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 their Catholic sons and daughters to learn. Uh, And so you got uh, from a lot of the bishops a desire for more separation of church and state so that the Catholics wouldn't have to pay twice for education, one for a school they don't attend and one for the school they do. Um, And as a result uh, of being both, you know, very emphatically Republican and more than comfortable with the idea of a separation of church and state, there is a very significant gulf that opens um, over just a shared assumptions Because many of the more traditional bishops uh, from places like Germany and France and Spain, uh, they sort of take for granted that the church should not only be established, but should be serving the role of providing this education without any interference from state sponsorship. Uh, And so the Americans appear to have everything backwards and as a result seem also to not necessarily be as Catholic as they're supposed to be.
0: That's very interesting. It, it honestly brings to mind uh, something I kind of wonder about. Um, taking an example from my people, um, it, it, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, especially spread by the Protocols of the Elders of Zion um, uh, and fears of the Bolshevik Revolution, which of course they said all Jews were involved in. And I thought to myself, hang on a second. Uh, there was there were tons of jewish newspapers in this era there was tons of there were tons of jewish political fights all of this stuff was open documentary record and anybody who wanted to do even the most superficial bit of research could have found out that the idea that there was this great evil jewish uh, united jewish conspiracy to take over or destroy the world was absolute nonsense and yet a lot of ostensibly intelligent people believed it and from what you're telling me uh the People from the leadership on down in America very much wanted to be Americans, went out of their way to try and prove their loyalty, and a lot of this stuff was easily open public record, and they even clashed uh, with their own supreme religious leader. So that being the case, how is it that so many, quote-unquote, ostensibly intelligent Protestants nevertheless clung to what could only be called uh, Medieval, in the bad sense, paranoia about their Catholic fellow Catholic citizens
1: so this is an absolutely vital question, and it's worth noting that the conspiracy theories about um Jews uh, have a kind of common logic with conspiracy theories against. Roman Catholicism in the United States. And of course, the irony is that Roman Catholics in Europe, of course, believed in the Judeo-Masonic conspiracy theory, which includes things like the, the, uh, the protocol. So everyone's got their conspiracies during the 19th century. Uh, and in the United States, the Protestant conspiracy theory is based off of this, this actual gap between the American and European uh, Catholicisms. Because you get from people like P.O. Nono or Pope Pius IX, the condemnation of liberalism and uh, the syllabus of errors and uh, uh, th- this like a violent uh, revolt against uh, republicanism, little r republicanism uh, in um, uh, in the church. I shouldn't say, not quite violent, but this sort of, uh, this kind of... Um, uh, very strenuous, which is what I meant. Very strenuous opposition to any change in the relationship between the church and state, uh, because the church understood itself to be preserving Christendom in Europe. Whereas, because the Catholics in the United States never held a majority position, they uh, after a generation they stopped having these expectations for their their way of life, and so the church would promulgate condemnations of institutions that actually benefited the American church. So the idea of the separation of church and state's very bad if you're in a Catholic majority country and the church that's being uh, separated from had a historical role in providing the cultural foundation for that culture that the church had spent a millennium building. Whereas in the United States, the separation of church and state's one of the things that will actually protect it from a a Protestant establishment. and so, when you got people like Samuel Morse uh, writing um, uh, uh, anti-Catholic tracts, or then after, more more uh, appropriate to the Gilded Age, uh, the Ku Klux Klan uh, and uh, its various tracts, the reason that they suppose that the American Catholic Church is such a danger to the the, the the, re- the liberty of the United States re- grounded in the English Reformation was that they believed that the American clergy and the American laity were lying uh, and that everything they were saying was a front uh, for the eventual seizure of Republican government by the papacy. Uh, So the the idea that you had um, uh, a a sort of little r Republican Catholic church in America was a front that was meant to insinuate a group of people who were fundamentally disloyal uh, so that they could eventually, once their numbers are large enough, uh, produce... Uh, the, revol- uh, the revolution against the Constitution. And the way that they could do this was only of course with the Irish, according to these conspiracy theories, because they were too stupid and too dissolute a people to do anything but what the church told them to, which is why they're depicted as sort of uh, as sort of uh, like sort of uh, like monkeys and apes with sticks uh, and, uh, the, and, and the cartoons of the era. Uh, so it did. So every time a Catholic priest or a Catholic bishop or a leading Catholic figure in the laity said, no, we're actually um, very dedicated to upholding um, the Constitution as a protection of our natural rights and liberties, that was actually proof to these the people who believed in these conspiracies that the conspiracy was true. So that's uh, that's quite a position to be in. Um, and as you were saying um, uh, any efforts uh, to uh, to corroborate the claims made by these Americans was ready readily available. This document from the Third Plenary Council is is readily available to people who would consult it. But anytime they'd read it, the uh, conspiracy theorists would assume that this was all just a cover story that they were covering their bases for that moment when the octopus uh, in the Vatican, the Great Horror of Babylon, would make the call and uh, America would be dissolved and, and placed under. Uh, the vassalage of the Holy See.
0: Yeah, man, Uh, not much has changed. You just, uh, they changed the targets, changed the conspiracies, but the mode of thinking never changes, I guess. So one thing uh, which uh, was driven by this sort of fear of disloyal, uh, fear of disloyal uh, uh, Catholic citizens was, of course, the the infamous uh, Blaine Amendments, uh, which... Uh, basically, uh, for basically on, the only public money for education could only go to public schools, which at that time were effectively Protestant schools. So how exactly did the Catholics uh, manage to just financially and organizationally deal with the fact that as you said, now they have to pay taxes for schools they don't want their kids to go to, and they have to pay money to maintain the schools they want their kids to go to.
1: So uh, the answer's not well. Um, uh, for as long as there had been uh, Catholic parochial schools in the United States, uh, there had always been a financial crunch. And the reason for this was that uh, your average Catholic uh, did not make as much money as your average Protestant. Um, this is owing to the fact that many of the Catholics arriving in the United States during the 19th century Uh, Did not arrive with anything they did, you know, they would spend all their money on just getting across the ocean and they were coming from places where they were not really allowed to own anything. So you're talking here about the Irish Catholics. Now, a minority of the Catholics arriving in the United States are German. uh, And the thing about the German Catholics is that they uh, go inland and uh, they, they, unlike the Irish who have a different settlement pattern, pattern, they stay in the cities. The Germans move inland and they have much less of a problem. With developing their own schooling, it's the it's the Irish who work low uh, who work low income jobs and arrive in such abundant numbers so quickly that make uh, the scale of the educational problem go up so fast for bishops who may maybe are very smart in theology but uh, you know suddenly need to operate a diocese that costs a ton of money. So normally the way that a bishop would deal with this would be to fundraise. Uh, in the early days before the Gilded Age, the way that Uh, john hughes did it bishop john hughes did it was he he essentially went with his uh saturnala his hat his uh his hat uh it went to all the capitals uh of catholic europe and begged for money and he gets money from like uh you know uh, austrian nobility and stuff like that to get the doors open but by this point uh, by the gilded age um there are other uh things that people are trying now they can keep the schools open and one of the major reasons they can keep the schools open is that they do not have to pay the teachers, since the teachers are religious. They're uh, they've taken vows of poverty. Many of them are nuns. Uh, also, a, a fair number of them belong to teaching uh, uh, religious orders of men. Uh, so, uh, at this point, what you really need to cover are the buildings um, and and the books and stuff like that. And these are, all have to be paid with through private fundraising. Uh, and uh, the, these efforts at first are very difficult and only pick up speed when um, the generation, the first famine Irish generation moved from low income to maybe middle income status. And uh, this is the Gilded Age is when this starts. Uh, so early in the Gilded Age, like right after the Civil War, because of the general sort of economic, um, uh, the general economic problems of the period, uh it's very difficult to keep these schools open but by the end when we get to like right up to the progressive era uh these schools are open but it, it there are a lot of very important figures who who try to create schemes uh to keep their their books uh, their schools open um archbishop john ireland who's one of the real titans of the american catholic church during this period a man who made a lot of very bad and a lot of very good decisions uh uh, we could talk about him later if you like. Uh, he uh, he he tried to uh, create a school program, and uh, in, and uh, in which uh, the that he would essentially sell the parochial schools to the state, but they would reserve the religious orders teaching in them, uh, and the church would cover the periods of the day and the curriculum for the sectarian uh, educational part of the um, of the day for the various students. Uh, and there is a hue and cry among more traditional Catholics over whether this is licit, whether, uh, you know, these schools are are allowed to do this uh, because they regarded uh, Ireland as compromising the integrity of the church. It goes all the way up the chain in the Vatican, and the Vatican says it's okay. And then as soon as Ireland gets news that it's okay, uh, the state of uh, Minnesota rejects the plan. So, uh You know, it is incredibly complicated. And a big reason for this is because, as you mentioned, you have Blaine Amendments. And the Blaine Amendments are these efforts to uh, deny sectarian schools funding. But practically speaking, common schools or public schools were Protestant schools. Uh, And so the apparently neutral strategy... Uh, or law I'm sorry, uh, of, of denying sectarian schools public funding to preserve the se- uh, separation of church and state was really a strategy of excluding Catholics from, uh, from this funding apparatus. And originally Blaine came up with this idea in, 18, uh, in 1876 as a senator from Maine uh, to help boost his national profile and also to kind of put his arm around uh, President Grant, uh, who uh, was, uh, a fo- was fond of the idea. Uh, now at the federal level it fails, but a lot of states adopt these uh, these Blaine amendments as a way of preventing what they see as this like emerging Catholic uh, uh, um, uh, uh, beast that wishes to suck the at the at the public teat uh, for all of this money that would then educate a generation of Catholics that would seize the republic out of the hands of its of its protestant liberty and surrender it to to rome Uh, and so this was seen as a way of defending the culture from uh catholicism uh and uh one of my favorite sort of ironies of history is that the uh that the blaine amendments were still more or less with us until 2017 uh and the uh the the case that overturns the blaine amendments uh is uh not a case in which a Catholic Church sues, but a Protestant one does, Uh, Trinity Lutheran Church uh, of Columbia, uh, they're able to overturn the Blaine Amendments, uh, and that's because uh, by the time the Blaine Amendments start to get used against Protestants, Protestants turn against them uh, as well, and that's kind of, you know, it's not maybe the best uh, basis for ecumenicism, but Catholics will take what they can get in this country.
0: Fair enough, entirely fair enough. Before we talk about uh, some of the uh, personalities you mentioned, uh, Gibbon and others, um, one of the most important issues or concerns in the time of the in the time of the Gilded Age, and indeed deep until today, um, was that this is a time of rapid economic and social change. Uh, most people are leaving the farm; they're going into the city; they're becoming. Uh, working class or small artisans or businessmen of one kind or another. Um, there's a lot of insecurity, there's uh, a lot of strife, there's a lot of complaints about social injustice. Um, and i I know, although I'm obviously not incredibly familiar with the fact that the the Catholic Church wrestled with this question of what exactly is the right balance between the freedom to make uh, the freedom to do what's best for your family and to provide for your family and perhaps the need for the government or associations to step in. So I was wondering, uh, rather than ask what the Pope did, because obviously they were off and odds. what did major American uh, Catholic institutions, where did they stand uh, within the American political spectrum about uh, what to do about uh, social social and class strife? So um,
1: during this period, the catholic church was very f- in flux uh for example bishop ireland was a republican i believe like more, more or less but and um uh, that seems weird because i i mean uh let me make sure i get this right but i'm i'm like 99% sure yeah blaine was a republican right so that would be a weird thing to uh Uh, uh, for for Ireland to be especially because Ireland is directly damaged by Blaine's politics Uh, but that's because partisanship of the period was considerably uh, less ideologically homogenized Uh, and so it made more sense uh, for Ireland out in Minnesota to be a Republican whereas Blaine is you know in the Northeast Um, but uh, normally the uh, the the partisanship mapped on to class uh, uh, where typically wealthier Catholics, middle class Catholics were more uh, sympathetic to uh, the Republican Party, even uh, to the point where you had, uh, and this is very hard for people to accept. But you had Catholic um, you had Catholic temperance organizations composed of uh, buttoned up Victorian types. Uh, who uh, who thought that the Catholic Church needed to become more respectable and stop sending their men to taverns and spending their their weekly wages on 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 drinks, um, but um, I, but generally speaking, because the Catholic Church was more working class, they tended to side more with populist candidates, which um, found more of a reliable home in the Democratic Party, um, and this became especially true when uh, the united states started to you know experience the rise of things like the knights of labor um and the catholic church um because of this sort of working class foundation during the gilded age had priests that came from these working class families that often were defenders of a a kind of a progressive social justice um uh uh, agenda that we more associate with the old left uh in this country. you know, trade unionism, uh, minimum wage, representation of labor on corporate boards, this kind of old-style uh, um, approach to to uh, populist or or union government that's kind of seen a, a bit of a renaissance uh, in uh, some wings of conservatism today, um, oddly enough. You wouldn't expect to find it there, given that it has its origins, in most cases, among more progressive uh, types uh, during the period, but that's just how these things go. Um, but one of the funnier things that ends up leading the Catholic Church away too much from uh, from siding with um, uh, uh, with one party or another is that a dividing line very quickly becomes uh, the dry versus the wet. So even the Catholic temperance movement would not be in favor of banning alcohol um, or banning the sale of alcohol. Uh, and so uh, Catholics become, once once the temperance movement really starts to pick up steam, uh, even the Catholic temperance people were very frequently like not a fan of the total ban. Uh, and so if you were a Catholic, you were automatically associated with being a wet on the question, which meant that, uh, you know, uh, that there was a kind of peculiarity or a wrinkle uh, to a person, uh, even being very progressive, that they would probably also like, you know, to, to have a scotch every now and then uh, without having to be sent to federal prison.
0: Fair enough, and it sounds it sounds logical enough, so tell me more about these 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 characters the gibbon Ireland who were they why are they important for this period? What impact did they leave?
1: Oh, you didn't tell me we were doing a six hour podcast uh this is, no okay, so this is very uh this is this is gonna be the shortest version of this I could possibly give. Um, One of the outcomes of the Plenary Council of 1884 is the establishment of Catholic University of America. Uh, And the the start of Catholic University of America is still around today, right? It's it's, um, it's in Washington, D.C., where uh, it was founded. Uh, This is a real triumph for the uh, the bishops. Uh, John Ireland from St. Paul, Cardinal James Gibbon from Baltimore— wanted there to be a, a, a an Episcopal school, not like Episcopalian, but an Episcopal school that the bishops would fund and would be the the heart of, of American Catholicism. Now, before that, it had been Georgetown. The thing about Georgetown is that, first of all, it's Jesuit, uh, so it has a very specific religious order component to it that makes it considerably less universal than the bishop's school. Uh, the other thing is that uh, when uh, Bishop John Carroll founded uh, Georgetown it was understood to be allowed that any uh, any anyone could go uh, and so the Catholic University was supposed to have a very Catholic identity and so you would think that this would be a kind of triumph and in a way it is I mean it's it's great school it's still to this day even though it's a rival of Ave Maria so uh, maybe it's against interest to say that but that's how you know I mean it um, but the thing about Gibbon in Ireland is they're what's called um, Americanists I mentioned this term earlier uh americanist means that they are people who are as i described earlier people that are little are republican they celebrate uh, the american constitution they wave the american flag they are uh, big fans of the separation of church and state as it operates in the united states especially for the interest and benefit of the catholic church um they are not necessarily uh Unanimous in this, uh, there, there's a they have a friend uh, who they put in CUA as its as a rector named uh, Bishop John Keene, who had been at Richmond, Virginia, and uh, so everything appears to be going well. The trouble is, well, there's really a few things. The first is that the Archbishop of New York, a man named Michael Corrigan, who was like neck deep in Tammany Hall politics, just as an aside. Uh, was also very much a more aligned with a European-style Catholicism. He thought Americanism uh, uh, was bad. He thought John Ireland was bad. Uh, he thought, uh, he wouldn't say this because Corrigan ha- was a prince of the church with a red hat, but he didn't like uh, Gibbon being a friend of John Ireland's. And he certainly didn't like uh, Gibbon placing people like Bishop Keane in charge of CUA. Now this all sounds like very like petty, um, Sort of nasty politics, but that's it. That's, that's the church. The church has a lot of this at the Episcopal level and it's a shame, but it's sort of unavoidable. And a few things flare up that lead to a major rift among these people. The first thing that happens is something called Cahenzelism. Uh, now, I mentioned earlier that you had a large number of German Catholics. Now, they were not the majority. They were a minority of the Catholics that came in during the 19th century prior to the emigration the of Southern and Central European Catholics. Uh, earlier in the 20th century, they were Irish and German. And uh, the thing about the German Catholics is they stayed German culturally. They spoke German, uh, and they did not like Irish bishops Uh, even though they had very little say over who was appointed these bishops. uh, And they especially did not like the idea of Americanizing. They liked being German. Uh, They just left Germany because in many cases it was the best thing for their families. And so a guy named uh, Peter Hensley, who was a member of the German Reichstag, actually proposes the idea that uh, where there are German communities, there should be German bishops and that the, the Catholic Church should appoint Bishops to these areas over the top of what American bishops want, and the uh, the the American bishops uh, are not pleased with this. Um, they regard this as making a very difficult situation worse because suddenly the Catholic Church is importing German bishops who don't even speak English uh, and care nothing for the uh, for uh, for America and as far as uh, uh, onlookers. Uh, have in mind so cancelism goes down in flames, but it's not something people forget either in the United States where the German communities are involved or in Europe, uh, where uh, they took a special notice of other uh, of Gibbon and Ireland's opposition. The next problem is the Spanish American War. Um, uh, the uh, the so-called black Pope uh, that is the head of the Jesuit order uh, was Spanish and was uh, infuriated that the United States fought a war against Spain but even more so that the American bishops did nothing to stop it uh, he thought because he's Spanish um, he thought that the American bishops would have incredible at least soft power and uh, persuading uh, American uh, political leaders uh, and what of course uh, this this man did not understand uh, was that if the bishops and the United States had come out against the Spanish American war it would have been a nightmare for the Catholic Church. Uh, uh, and I don't know if uh, the American bishops actually cared all that much about the Spanish-American War. I don't actually know. But um, but the biggest problem that uh, that people like Gibbon in Ireland had was a man named uh, uh, Cardinal Francesco Satoli, and he's what's called an apostolic delegate, essentially a representative of the Pope in the United States. And he was at Washington, the nation's capital, and also right next to Catholic University. Um, and he was at first very good friends with people that were Americanists like Keene and Gibbon in Ireland. But over time, he sort of migrates over to the more uh, reactionary types uh, like Corrigan. And uh, there is a particular German priest who's unhappy about uh, named uh, Joseph Schroeder, who's also 100% loathed uh, by people at Catholic University. He teaches there... Um, uh, but very quickly makes friends with uh, Satoli, even though he's not well-liked at CUA. And Satoli actually helps with the process of getting Keane fired from CUA as its rector. And then the year after that, Schroeder's fired and sent packing back to Europe. Uh, and all of this turns into uh, the ground for what's called the Americanism controversy, which if you like, I can talk about, but this is a lot already. So you let me know what uh, whether you want me to talk about that.
0: Um, well, before we go into that uh, a little bit more in detail, uh, I thought I might veer a little bit sharply uh, into the direction, into, to, to direction of a question I forgot to ask. Um, you mentioned briefly the uh, the fact that the, the Catholic Church, or at least some of its members, had a complicated relationship, let's say, with uh, the reality of American slavery. Well, in this era, slavery is over, um, but the problem of uh, black American civil rights is still very much an issue, especially with uh, the failure of Reconstruction and the collapse, uh, and the collapse of the uh, military government and the imposition of Redemption. Um, and so, I wonder, not just a question, not just as a question of uh, what was their general attitude as Americans. I imagine uh their position in louisiana there must have been at least some black american catholics who were subject to these uh, degrading and awful uh depredations what how how if at all did uh, did did the catholic american leadership react
1: so this is an excellent question and i'm glad you stopped me from talking about americanism because we're recording this and you know in february it's black history month here in the united states and uh uh, one of the most important figures for American Catholicism is venerable Augustus Tolton, who was um, a person uh, who was a Catholic uh, black man uh, who sought to become a Catholic priest here in the United States. Um, he had been a former slave, uh, was raised Catholic. Uh, let me see where he's from. He was, from, uh, he was born in Missouri um, and um, he was not allowed to enter any of the American seminaries for formation in the priesthood. And uh, as a result, uh, had to essentially go on tour to find a place that would take him. Um, uh, he tried uh, uh, Quincy, Illinois, um, uh, where he was able to get some, uh, some school, uh, but ultimately where he ended up uh, um, was, um, let me see, uh, was the Pontifical Urbania University uh, um, in I'm sorry I'm just looking this up um, where is it at uh, hopefully you can get it this out <laughs> uh, it's in Rome of course it is uh, so he had to go to Italy uh, I wanted to save Rome but I wanted to make sure um, he has to go overseas uh, in order to complete his priestly studies uh, and uh, he is ordained uh, a priest in the uh, uh, in uh, uh, in in Italy and is sent back to the United States um, to uh, to uh, to begin his mission. Uh, importantly, you know he's ordained in Rome. Uh, he says his first Catholic Mass, and this is this is amazing, right? His first Catholic Mass is actually not said in the United States; it's said at St. Peter's Basilica on Easter Sunday. All right. This I mean this is a big deal. This is a Vatican statement on uh the free men and women uh and uh in the United States. And then uh, in the United States he comes to St. Benedict the Moor uh in uh New York City a a church that was founded to uh uh serve a black catholic community. Now unfortunately Tolton dies uh very young. Um it's uh it's he dies at 43. Uh, but he's uh, a, a very uh, pivotal figure because um, he's, uh, he's actually not uh, the first black man in the United States to become a priest, but he's the first one to be publicly black. Uh, and uh, what that means is that we actually had uh, the Healy brothers uh, who had been priests before him, but they uh, were part of a mixed race family and uh, did something called pass, right? They passed as white. Um, but Tolton was uh, affirmatively black and he received this support from Rome in part because uh, the Catholic Church and Rome understood the situation that uh, uh, in, in the United States was uh, an opportunity in which all of these people who have been subjugated to shadow slavery were now suddenly given the opportunity uh, to enter into ordinary life and the church should be there to defend them, to defend them from um from attack, but also to be evangelized. And um, so this was the idea, and, and there were some uh, Catholic uh, clergy who were very into this idea. The aforementioned uh, Bishop Archbishop John Ireland had been uh, in the uh, Union Army as a chaplain, and very vocal about the need to defend racial equality, protect black civil rights from efforts to rescind them through the courts or through uh, code noirs or black laws. But um, in, in places like, as you said, Louisiana, there was none of this. Um, even though there's a very long history of, uh, of black religious life uh, among uh, uh, sisters uh, in convents there, uh, there, this whole idea of having a black priest wasn't uh, acceptable. Uh, And the idea of uh, of their of racial equality was out the window. And unfortunately, in a lot of these areas, because these are people that are regionally based. Right. You have people who go to a regional seminary, then become priests in some part of the place where they were raised uh, because the diocese is training their priests and deploying them at some sort of parish uh, nearby. Uh, All of the the prejudices and biases in the area um uh, really uh, are reproduced even in the priests uh so you know there are a lot of people who are people of conscience who are who may uh, have uh, uh eaten away at the edges in the south but generally speaking southern catholics not that there were a lot of them outside of louisiana uh were uh did not equip...
0: Increasingly large uh, black american okay uh, so let's uh certainly given us a lot to chew on, a lot of things to think about, a lot of things maybe to invite you for another episode. Uh, but let's end with, um, I guess, two questions that are one. Uh, the end of this period sees uh, America's greatest expansion out into the world and also its greatest contraction. Uh, it's, it's The end of our period starts with the First World War uh, and ends with the 1921 and 1924 um, immigration laws, which effectively tell everybody who is not a white American Anglo-Saxon Protestant uh, that you are not wanted here, and I honestly wonder how did the because I know that for instance the First World War, much like the Civil War and many of America's wars up up until that point, was very much a Protestant crusade for many leaders and many thinkers um, and it Woodrow Wilson even uh, formulated as kind of a crusade for, uh, to make the world safe for democracy. And I was wondering what did American Catholic leaders think or feel about, on the one hand, America was quote unquote uh, going on this great crusade, what they thought of the idea of crusading, and they even called Pershing a crusader. And on the other hand, by the end, it felt like uh, there had been such an, an enormous backlash. Uh, That they're they're honestly being told, okay, those of you who are here will put up with you, but you can't bring any more of your people.
1: So the the First World War has an event in it that I think a lot of people forget about, which is that uh, Woodrow Wilson more or less gave his blessing to vigilante groups to engage in uh, forms of what they regarded as pro-American activity. Uh, which included things like uh, the suppression of uh, German language newspapers and associations. And a lot of this happened in the Midwest, and uh, a lot of uh, Catholic communities were, were were caught up in this, uh, German Catholic communities. And so they experienced a pretty significant uh, transformation where they had to immediately start printing in English and... Speaking in English and teaching in English, uh, all in order to demonstrate their uh, their patriotism. Um, and the uh, you know the, the the issue with so much of uh, so much of this transformation was that it did have, as you say, a kind of missionary quality, a kind of Protestant crusading quality to it. Uh, and the Irish in in the United States uh, were somewhat attenuated uh, when it came to how they wanted the war to go. Uh, a big reason for this was that um, Catholics in the United States sometimes hated Britain more than they could hate anything, especially if they were more recent immigrants, and they were raised to feel this way. Uh, so if they saw Great Britain... Uh, suffering losses in a war that must be a, uh, a good thing so a lot of Irish Americans were happy to see uh, the British uh, dying uh, and so they had a kind of sympathy for the Germans uh, now this wasn't widespread it was more sort of uh, dotted around uh, but it was sufficiently common that uh, the issue really uh, really resonates with uh, a, a, a a later development where the, uh, the person who's able to really concentrate this this hatred comes along in the interwar years, a father, uh, Ch- Charles Coglins who I'm thinking of. Um, so the uh, the other thing to to point out here uh, is that this is also a period in which the Catholic Church, Uh, is beginning to deal with issues of progressivism and the the Catholic Church facing uh, these issues took a took an interest in temperance movement if you can believe it there was a Catholic temperance movement uh, but also in social justice causes and these stem directly from the uh, social encyclicals that came out of Pope Leo the 13th papacy Uh, and so at this period uh, and the in the years after the Americanism controversy, uh, there is uh, a kind of turning towards social justice that had really kind of already occurred with people like Cardinal Gibbons and Archbishop Ireland, uh, but becomes very much a part of the the legacy of Monsignor John Ryan. Um, should have looked this up. I'm just going to do a quick uh, search on when he was born. Yeah. So he he um, he's he's at this point uh, in in the uh, in the early 20th century, engaging in uh, some of his early work, his early study. And then eventually, um, uh, by 1923, uh, he is beginning the Catholic Conference on Industrial Problems. Uh, so we, it's uh, a big part of uh, of this progressive period is, uh, it is caught up in the desire for social justice. And there's a very strongly working class element to uh, what they're doing here. There's a strong sense of worker solidarity that is meant to be a, an alternative to uh, to, to socialist or, or left-wing causes. And often this is, is associated with Dorothy Day, and quite rightly, but she's actually inheriting uh, and and concentrating a movement that had begun a generation before her.
0: Okay, so that's the First World War. What about the uh the immigration uh, the immigration mor- moratorium effectively how do uh, ordinary Catholics and especially Catholic leaders uh react to the door being slammed shut?
1: Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot about that. I'm actually less certain. I think it's part of the reason why I forgot is, you know, academics if if there's something we don't know we try to bury it pretend like uh, uh but uh I'm I'm a little less certain on this. Generally speaking, um from what I can remember, which is very very surface Uh, is that uh, Catholics typically uh, um, actually remained ethnically associated as much as it did religiously. So this means that um, they would prefer uh, to have, uh, if you're Irish Catholic, you'd want more Irish emigration. You wouldn't necessarily feel a kind of common cause with Italians or Polish, uh, Slovenian Catholics, Mexican Catholics. Uh, You wouldn't necessarily feel a, a common cause with them. That's actually a product of the American diocese and parish. Um, so generally speaking, the Irish did have one thing they liked about immigrants though. And this is something I, I just occurred to me while I was, uh, mentioning the, uh, demographic stuff that, um, is important to point out, which is that in major Northern, especially East coast urban centers like Boston and New York, uh, you, you had a uh, very powerful Irish Catholic, uh, voting machines and by machines I don't mean like scantrons or or lever voting I mean like party machines like Tammany Hall being the kind of uh the classic example um and in this case there was an exception uh and the reason for this is that if you see you know uh like a Czech Jewish family trying to get off the uh the boat uh, in fact uh you know they didn't even uh have a chance to get off the boat um there's uh, an excellent book on this. Let me just go over here and check the name. Uh. I'm sorry, I've forgotten the name of this book. Uh, hopefully, we can edit out that pause. I'm sorry. Uh, the uh, uh, that uh, that the you would often have Tammany Hall members rowing out to Ellis Island and getting people to register for the Democratic Party and to become sort of integrated in Tammany Hall before they even left Ellis Island. Uh, and um, amazingly, these kinds of connections that Irish Catholics make in places like Boston and, and New York, uh, not just there, but also places like Chicago and Baltimore, but uh, they, they this leads to is uh, that Irish Catholic and uh, Jewish immigrants uh, uh, are so thick together in uh, preserving uh, the Democratic Party's uh, political machines, is that when prohibition comes, uh, Catholic men, uh, who did not want to become priests because there was a lot of issues here, uh, would uh, would often get sort of a, a token rabbinical uh, certification that would allow for them to have uh, access to wine, uh, which they would then promptly sell on the black market. Um, uh, but the other thing that was important about here is Irish Catholics were extremely effective about integrating Italians, Poles, Ukrainians, Uh, whoever was coming in, uh, into um, party politics as well as into church life. But even in the case of Jews, uh, they were at least able to form some kind of uh, integrated politics. But this is not to say that they necessarily got along. And there's plenty of stories about, um, you know, uh, Irish Catholic kids like snatching... uh, um, kippahs off the heads of uh, of Jewish immigrants or what have you, uh, but it was at least uh, you know a pretty raucous city. Uh, but there was this uh, curious example of of this kind of immigration playing a significant role when that when it gets uh, it, and and sort of development of, of social life in these cities. So when this gets cut off, um, there's a pretty significant um, uh, change in the profile of these of these machine politics uh, organizations uh, that go from. Uh, primarily based around sort of new immigrants who have come to the United States, maybe don't even speak the language, uh, to second generation families who are more established. And so the the profile of the party issues actually uh, change a little bit over time to the point where like Tammany Hall, before it reaches its final end, is almost respectable, but you know, um, almost, uh, emphasis on the almost.
0: Okay. That, so uh, that is a uh, great uh, coda to our conversation uh, and I very much hope to be able to invite you on uh, uh, when you're available uh, for more in-depth discussions of many of these fascinating characters. Professor Patterson, thank you very much for coming on. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thank you very much. It was a treat. Uh, this is one of my favorite topics so it was great to, uh, to talk to you about it.